welcome back to The Pod Crashed. This week, we're telling the story of Eastwind Airlines Flight 517. Thanks for listening. <sighs> My cat is screaming right now. Is he? What is he screaming about? He's screaming because he's out there alone. Oh, is Ty not out there? Uh-huh. No, he's walking the pup. Oh. And we're trying to figure out how to not create a codependent cat, but it's not working out because we're home right. all the well, time, especially like, with a closed door. Home. Right, right, yeah. right. The closed door. Yeah, the closed door. He's like, wait a minute. They object. Yes. To the closed door. Very strongly. Yeah. Um. Today we are telling the story of Eastwind Airlines Flight Five One Seven, but this is a sneaky. Part yeah. two, yeah. to a sneaky two-parter. And uh, so if you haven't listened to our last episode, go ahead and listen to that first. But I will give you a rundown. Anyway, so on March 3rd, 1991, uh, United Airlines Flight 585, a Boeing 737, was descending toward Colorado Springs when the plane suddenly rolled over, inverted, crashed, killing the 25 people on board. The NTSB spent years desperately trying to figure out what happened. And after years of, of searching, investigating, going through tiny burned pieces of metal, trying anything they could to figure out what happened, they had to file a report that says the cause was undetermined. They just did not know what happened. Mm. Only a few months after they issued that report on September 8th, 1994, another 737, U.S. Airways uh, Flight 427, was descending toward Pittsburgh. It rolled over, crashed, killing everyone on board. Now the NTSB is even more desperate to find the cause. Two 737s mm. in a matter of a short, like less than three years, yeah. two rolled over uncommanded and crashed, killing everyone on board. For anyone who doesn't know, a Boeing 737 is the most popular commercial plane ever made. It is. It flies everywhere, all over the world. Every airline has them. It is an incredibly common plane that millions of people fly on. And to have two of them roll over uncommanded and crash and not know why. Yeah, it's a huge deal. And the NTSB, I mean, it's not like there's endless turnover at the NTSB or the FAA for that matter. They, the, a lot of the same people worked on both investigations, but as they looked and looked, the, the wreckage of uh, U.S. Air 427 was slightly more intact than UA-585, but even being slightly more intact wasn't saying much. And they thought it had to have something to do with the rudder. Because a rudder would cause that kind of sharp 
roll and fall out of the sky. Yeah. But they had looked at the relevant components, particularly the PCU, the power control unit, and a particular unique portion of the PCU, which is a dual servo uh, valve, that they thought, because it's a unique component and because it controls the rudder, they thought that it it's a good instinct to look there and try to figure that out. But they had run every conceivable test and it just worked fine. It just worked fine and they couldn't mm. figure it out. A little less than two years later, they are still investigating the U.S. air crash because they just can't put out another undetermined cause right. report that they can't have two planes suffer the exact same fate and say we still don't know right. and leave the most popular plane in existence in the air. The people that the agents are having nightmares that they're like that another plane has crashed and there's all this like blood on their hands and they're being dragged before congressional hearings and it's just taking this massive toll on them because the truth is is that they are not closer to figuring this out. On June 9th, 1996, before the second report had even been completed, before they could basically figure it out or give up on figuring it out and admit defeat, Eastwind Airlines, Flight 517, another 737, is flying from uh, Trenton, New Jersey, to Richmond, Virginia. The pilots flying this aircraft are surely, like every other pilot or, or maintenance worker, NTSB official, like anybody who interacts with the 737 has to be aware of these heinous crashes yeah. with unknown causes. So the pilots flying today as they descend toward Richmond are uh, Captain Brian and First Officer Spencer, both totally competent, experienced pilots. This aircraft that they're flying, while it is a, a 737 of the same type as the other two, hasn't had any reports of like smaller rudder malfunctions so the united airlines flight 585 that aircraft in the days leading up to the crash had had other incidents where the rudder had notched over more like five degrees or 10 degrees rather than a full like flip the plane over and crash yeah. kind of rudder hard over but this aircraft so far hasn't had any problems but i can't imagine i'm positive these pilots are aware of the unknown danger that there might they might be putting themselves in by yeah. flying this plane there are 53 people on board two pilots three flight attendants and 48 passengers they it's nighttime but the weather is beautiful it's it's night so it's dark you know, they, they can't see like they could in the daytime, but it's clear, winds are fine, no rain, no weather, just a beautiful night for flying. I mean, it's early June in Virginia, right? right? They're, they're coming in for landing. It's gorgeous out. 
as they're descending, they get to 5,000 feet, so 5,000 feet above the ground, and they're given permission from air traffic to descend to 4,000 feet as they get closer and closer to the airport. Before they start that descent down to 4,000, for anyone who doesn't know, the rudder controls. So if you imagine the rudder is um, on that like tail fin, right? On the, the mm-hmm. upper, that, the part of the tail of a plane that points straight up. Um, and the controls for the rudder are pedals that are at the pilot's feet. So they let their feet rest on those pedals. You know, a cockpit just isn't that big, right? It's kind of a tight squeeze. And their feet like rest on those rudder pedals, um, but they don't you know, so they're ready to push them if they need to, but they're not applying pressure. At 5,000 feet, Brian, who's fl- the captain who's flying the plane, feels like a kick, like against his foot from the rudder. Oh. Like if you imagine maybe what you might feel if, um, if somebody like flicked the bottom of your foot, like a, it kicked back at him. And at the same time, the flight attendant, all the way in the rear of the aircraft, in the jump seat, because they're coming in for a landing, she feels that, like, kick underneath her, like this jolt, and can hear the noise underneath her. And for those pilots, Brian and Spencer, and that flight attendant, whose name I do not know, that had to be so spooky yeah because again they know that this aircraft has had problems with the rudder but they stay calm there's no turbulence they can't blame it on that they feel that kick and they want to get down as quickly as possible so they start to descend down to four thousand feet as they were commanded by air traffic control as they descend to four thousand feet suddenly the plane starts to roll over that same thing where the plane the right wing starts to point down the left wing starts to point up as the plane just rolls uncommanded for no reason this has to be like i think about the pilots of the first one what a nightmare this would be but for these pilots that was five years ago and they know that no one knows why that happened so that's it's like a nightmare coming true instead of just a sudden out of nowhere so the plane starts to roll the once it rolls instead of rolling and totally inverting it rolls so that the right wing is pointed straight down and the left wing is pointed straight up and so in that shape the plane starts to like slice down very quickly brian turns the yoke left and stomps on the left rudder to try to change the direction to try to level the wings he tries he pushes his foot as hard as he can into the left rudder pedal and it doesn't move period it does not move it's like stomping on the ground it doesn't move at all so brian thinking very quickly applies the left aileron and pushes the engine on the right side to full throttle. So he abandons using the rudder at all because it won't move an inch. And that force of creating more resistance on the left side with the aileron on the left wing and increasing the thrust in the right engine pulls that right engine up and pushes that left wing down and actually levels the wings. They actually did it. They were able to to right their aircraft. 
And Brian looks at Spencer and says, like, we have to start the checklist, right? We have to, you know, we got to get on the ground, but we have to start the checklist for rudder, you know, control failure. And he doesn't even finish the sentence before the plane rolls to the right again. Right wing pointed straight down, left wing pointed straight up. So now they are way lower to the ground. And so the plane is slicing down, down, down. He tries the rudder pedal again, and it's still completely stiff. It just will not move. He pushes the throttle. He does the same thing, left aileron, pushes the throttles forward on the right engine, tries to pick it up, but this time it's not picking up. It's not picking up. It's it, they're just slicing down, 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 down toward the ground, and then suddenly just rights itself. Like, as quickly as it happened, the plane just levels out. Now they're down close to the ground, and they're also, thank God, not far from the airport, but they don't know. They know if this happens again, they don't have enough time. There's not enough distance between them and the ground anymore for them to survive if this happens again. So Brian and Spencer start to work their way through the checklists, and uh, Brian tells Spencer to call air traffic control, declare an emergency. Once those two things are done, they're coming closer to the airport, but they're not that close and they're too fast and too high. And the slower they go as they try to descend and slow down for landing, the lower and slower they are, the more, the less time they'll have to recover. And being slower means that they're much more vulnerable to changes. When you're slower, those those changes in rudder controls, especially such an extreme, uncontrolled, unpredictable rudder change, will violently turn the plane even more and could flip it upside down completely. Brian looks at Spencer and says, like, find a dark patch where we could crash. Right. If we if we that happens again, I don't want to crash into somebody's home in Richmond, Virginia, pick a place. And Brian, by all accounts, said like was very calm and he just looked out, found a dark patch where it didn't look like there were any lights on, any houses, any buildings. And he was on their flight path and he pointed to it and he said, right there, you see it. And they agreed that they both saw it. But they didn't need it. They came in. They were still too fast and too high, so it was not a comfortable landing, but they landed safely in Richmond. When they slowed their plane down on the runway, Brian Spencer realized that they were like physically shaking violently, obviously, right? But but now that they're actually on the ground, they're they're shaking and they get to the the gate and before they open the door, Brian wants to say something to, to the passengers, and he picks up the phone to make like a PA announcement, and he can't speak. He can't mm. think of anything he could possibly say. He doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know yeah. what happened. There's right. nothing you can say to make this any better. And he just puts it back down, and they open the door, and the passengers get out. No one was truly injured. That flight attendant all the way in the back in the rear jump seat did get like bumped and scraped a little bit, but mm. thank God, like nobody was nobody was killed. Everyone survived. Yeah. And for the first time, this has happened, and they have a living, breathing crew and a completely intact aircraft. The NTSB 
as soon as they find out about this, I mean, they rush, run over to Richmond, Virginia. A lot of the same people who are currently still trying to investigate the U.S. Air um, 427 crash, yeah. those same people come along. They're like, this is going to be our answer. This is going to tell us, like, this is what's going to answer this question. This right. is what's going to allow us to solve 427. This is what's going to allow us to rewrite the United 585 uh, report like this is it we have everything live crew intact plane everyone lives right so they interview the pilots and the big thing is that 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 brian says that he stomped on the rudder as hard as he could and it just didn't move an ounce like it did it would not move hmm. it would not move completely stiff so that's extremely helpful information they were able to write their aircraft thank god but they um the pilots they don't know right they explained their experiences but the pilots obviously don't know what happened right. and with the aircraft they go right for the PCU. They go straight for the system that they've been suspicious of really for five years. Yeah. But every time they've looked at it, every every test they could possibly think of to do on what was left of the PCU from uh, the U.S. air crash, it's just told them nothing. It's told them nothing, but it's the only part of the plane that makes sense that it would be. And so they they take it out of the plane and they run, they inspect it, they inspect the entire rudder system, they run that PCU through every conceivable test, like anything they can think of. They look under microscopes, anything, and it just, it works fine. It just works fine. It just works fine. And they are like... I. I can't fathom like the relief that you would feel that a no one else was killed yeah. and b you're actually going to be able to figure this out and then the the frustration oh. like I think about how, yeah. how right how many different investigators there would be and I imagine that each of them would have kind of like their gut or like their pet theory or whatever and they would yeah. think like okay this is the test I think this is the test that's going to tell us or I think we're going to see this kind of markings on it and that'll tell us that it's this or whatever right they're just so it they put it through any test they can imagine and it's just fine and they inspect other things because again it's not good to have tunnel vision it's you you do yeah. have to look at it with fresh eyes like they look and it's just a completely functional aircraft they can't find anything and well and the fact that it doesn't happen like every flight like clearly it's not something right. obvious the right fact that we're like this is five years apart i mean that's crazy right in the last five years there have probably been, I mean, I, I don't know, but like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of flights with these aircraft, right? Right, with Boeing 737s. And three of them have had these extreme malfunctions, right? Right. So you're right that most of the time it works fine, but we know that this one didn't work fine. Exactly. We know that it didn't. We know for a fact that this one shouldn't work fine, but anything they do, any tests they run, anything that they look for, it, it just continues to look fine. And so they 
basically just ask anybody, just anybody that anybody who has ever lived and knows anything about planes. Does anybody have any idea for like a test we could do? And there's a guy who used to be in the military and he says, well, one of the tests that we military is as specific as this got, by the way. So Mm. whatever. But, um, but, (laughs) but this guy says, you know, there's a test that we used to run to like test for, extreme temperature conditions so we would like blast the right so june 9th in the evening in richmond in richmond not extreme weather conditions but at altitude gets pretty cold pretty fast Mm, right so they're like sure yeah. yeah whatever anything right so they basically said that that this kind of actuator so an actuator i'm gonna spare myself and all of you an explanation beyond an an actuator in anything the way it's the thing that actually does it yeah right so whatever the systems are in place to if you push a button and something happens the actuator is the thing that actually like does the thing so the actuators if they super cooled the components and then utilized superheated hydraulic fluid because the hydraulic fluid runs through very hot portions of the plane so if you have a super cooled component superheated hydraulic fluid sometimes weird stuff happens and again that's as as specific as he got and they were just like yeah yep whatever we're doing everything so they take the pcu connected to the dual servo valve right they take it they just blast that puppy with liquid nitrogen just they get it down to negative 40 degrees which as we all know is the same in celsius and freedom units so 40 degrees is the great equalizer yeah and so they get it down it's also the temperature that one would expect at high altitude right so they blast it so that it's horrifically cold and they boil up a steaming hot pot of hydraulic fluid And they have it set up so that they can pump that hydraulic fluid into the PCU the way that it would if it was actually a working component on a plane. And so superheated hydraulic fluid, super cold components, they start to run the test. And the actuator is, if you just imagine, it's just going like in and out, like a little a little piston, right? The actuator, if you imagine that, just going in, out, in, out, in, out. And that on the aircraft is what would turn the rudder left or right so if it was connected to everything so they're running it they're trying to keep it cold while they keep the hydraulic fluid hot it's just going in out in out in out in out and it jams it jams and this is the first time this thing has jammed ever it just stops it freezes in place and they're like Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is their first lead oh. in five years. Three, three incidents, two crashes, over 150 people died. This right. is the first real lead. Can you imagine being had. on the other end of that when it jams? Like, <gasps> oh my gosh. If you were in the room, it would be, if you were somebody who had, had yeah. oh my gosh. Screaming oh my gosh. So it's an just actual lead. So joyous. But, 
Right, right. And so, okay. Even okay, if it means these, nothing, we got like something happening. Something, something, right? And so, okay, but what they got to do, uh, as some of you might remember from last week, like the, the, when they had inve- like inspected the components of the PCU, because this thing has been taken apart, put back together, and put, just put through any test they can imagine, right? When they had pulled it apart, to see if those little filings that can get into hydraulic fluid had jammed something up, they were pristine under a microscope, no scratches, no nothing. And so now they have to see if the test that they just ran, it did, it did the thing. They did something to this PCU that caused it to jam yeah. for the first time in five years of trying, but does that leave some kind of mark? Right. Because if they now open it up, look under a microscope and there's evidence that wasn't there before. Right. Then this isn't it. Right. right? So that's another thing. So now they have to, like, find someone with a microscope that like <laughs> take it all apart. And so I just imagine like the scrambling of yeah. like, 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 Tony, do you have a mic- right. my microscope? <laughs> like, who's like, just like rip this thing apart. Like, just I, I just I don't know. I feel like your hands would be shaking trying to pull oh it apart. God, and yeah. so they. They took it all apart and they looked on the, under the microscope and it was pristine. It was uh. pristine. And so, oh my gosh, so the pieces start to fall back into place. Yeah. So when, when the NTSB is writing their reports, when they're doing their investigation, uh, all the, all the um, I don't know, invested parties are a part of that. So Boeing has been a part of the investigation, the airline pilots association, the union it has is part of it. Um, like any, the airline is part of it. So they, they give the data that they've just found to Boeing, not just because Boeing is, is, uh, you know, another, you know, interested party in the investigation, but also because, hey, Boeing, like, oh, my God, dude, like, look, this yeah. happens, right? Like, you're actually the ones responsible for this. So they give it to Boeing and God bless him. The the engineer at Boeing who receives this data from the NTSB from that test, he uh, is just going to be, you know, probably one of the most knowledgeable people on this system in the world. Yeah. And he's reading through the data. And he realizes that in like in reality, on board a plane, this has the potential to not only jam the rudder, but to actually reverse the controls. Oh so if you God. stomp on the right pedal, the plane will go left. And there's no way a pilot could know that. Right. So with that information that that engineer was able to interpret from the data... Now that helps to explain why the two previous pilot or the four previous pilots, uh, Peter, Patricia, Chuck and Harry, like the other the four pilots who were in this position before yeah. Spencer and Brian, why they couldn't like write their planes, period. So unlike when when Brian, who survived, tried to stomp on the rudder, when he tried to do that, because of where the actuator had jammed, it was just stuck. He couldn't press on it. But the other pilots, when they had tried to do the same thing, pushed down on the rudder to try to bring the plane the opposite way of the way it's going, they had no idea that 
it was it was pushing back against them they had to it was get they were getting more resistance way more resistance than you would normally get Mm. but they were able to press it and it had reversed so instead of going sideways like the east wind airlines flight had pointed right wing straight down left wing straight up and the other two had fully inverted because having the pilots had no clue and could never have known in the seconds that it took before their plane crashed that by pushing the rudder the plane was reversing that rudder control and actually flipping them further into the roll if that makes sense so oh my gosh which that i mean for but it it totally a just exonerated the pilots completely yeah right it's sickening but those pilots had done exactly exactly what you would have done in that in that situation yeah and one of the the investigators who was the um human what was it called the there's a special word, human performance. I think he's like the human performance specialist for the NTSB where he's like the psychological, like like researching the pilot's like state of mind oh, and their right. like information. That investigator, I appreciate him saying this, but he said that like if any of those previous pilots had gone to stomp on their rudder pedal and it had just been stuck, then their next move probably would have been exactly what Brian did. Yeah. Right. To like increase power on, on the side that's dipping down and put ailerons up on the other side. But because the actuator had jammed in a different position and reversed the controls, they only had time to try one thing and had no idea and and could never have it, it would be impossible it'd be impossible if you imagine like if a deer ran out in front of you and you you turned your wheel and the car just went in the opposite direction oh, yeah you no, wouldn't no. figure that out before you were off the road no, like it's just no. not possible so oh but they got their answer God. They put out the reports for the the Eastwind Airlines report. They put out the U.S. Air report finally for um, U.S. Air 427. They redid the report for United Airlines 585. Like all of those finally came out. Yeah. They did it. They did it. They did it. And uh, Boeing um, spent like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on like replacing the PCUs on every single 737 in the world, which I think it's worth saying that the NTS, it took the NTSB five years to figure out a test that would show this. Yeah. So I don't, I actually don't think Boeing deserves too much hate for this one right. just because yeah. any test that they, they, the, they couldn't figure any test out. They could I mean, have come up yeah. with. Right. They just didn't. And that's another change that was made was now the components, like it's, it's a more, in like the research and development phases and the testing phases of like aircraft components now like subjecting them to extreme temperatures yeah. and like considering the temperature effects or the way temperature impacts the aircraft is obviously more taken into account. And, right. Um, right. <sighs> yeah. This seems to be like an e- extreme example of how aviation works. You know, like this is yeah. one of the prime things that like like when you're like when they're trying to figure this stuff out to improve it in the future 
Right. You know, exactly. Like, exactly. Ugh, it's terrible, though. Oh, it is. And I, I think about that like. But wait, sorry. No, yeah. no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say just the like. You 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 just can't think of something that you can't think of, like you can't. Right. Like figuring out what tests to run, that was really what it came down to is figuring out what test to put this through. Yeah. And like excellent experts, the people who are the experts at this, Mm -hmm. like just could not. Couldn't come up with the right test for years, you know, because they just couldn't, you know, not for lack of trying by any stretch. And remind me, what year was the original crash, the first crash in? 91. 91, okay. 91, yeah. And June 9th, 1996 was the third, the Eastwind Airlines. And they did that test. They ran, like, the super temperature test on the PCU in August of 1996. Mm. So they, you know... And what did that did they aircraft. like make uh did they I forget what the phrase is called, but they basically like not like make sure that other planes didn't fly while they replaced the systems or they just kept flying because oh, they were so like ground few, the fleets. Ground, yeah, ground, ground fleets. That's a good question. If they I think that they might have I imagine I do not know this, but I imagine that that would be I I wish I'd looked more into that process because I think about like Boeing isn't going to like take all of those planes like back to Seattle right. to do it like right they'll probably send out that they had to redesign the units but and then send them out and I imagine that some airlines probably grounded their 737s yeah but they also have this information now right. on what it's, to do in this circumstance. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I kind of imagine that somewhere in the world, some 737s probably were grounded. Mm. But I imagine that a lot of them kept flying, to be totally honest, just yeah. because they had something they could do in this circumstance. I don't right. know. Right. No, I mean, it makes sense. Like, it makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, it would be. Oh, I think about when we talked about the Swiss Air flight and the um, captain's wife, like when the final report was finally released and it exonerated yeah. like her husband. I know exonerated is probably not the right word to use because the NTSB's job is not to like it's not criminal, right? Like they're not trying to their job is not to like find a villain or punish anybody, right? Um. They occasionally do, but, you know, that's not what they're looking for. But right, for like her, it was such... it's a neutral body. Right. But it was, like, such a relief for her yeah. to learn that. And on U.S. Um, Air 427, on that flight, the first officer who was flying had, like, he, he had, like, stomped on the pedal and, like, grunted against, like, the resistance mm. on it. and during the the years that the NTSB was investigating it, the um like Boeing said like 
do you think maybe he, like, in his panic, like, stomped on the wrong pedal? Mm. Like, did he just stomp on the, did he just hit the wrong pedal? Yeah. And the Airline Pilots Association, because your union is supposed to have your back, was like, he would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> how, how dare, dare you? you? Yeah. How dare you? But for, like, his family, I don't yeah. know how much of that they were aware of, um, but, but, um. I imagine that would be a huge relief for your family yeah, totally. to find out that like it was just nothing that yeah. they did wrong. They right. didn't cause it. Right. And the NDSB had bent that way kind of the whole time. Like that had been the hunch, mm. but you can't print a hunch. You know what I mean? No. Like they're. Yeah. So wow. those are those flights. Oh my gosh, wow. though, being a pilot, being a passenger, rather, I do think about like if you were if you were the passengers in like the East Wind mm-hmm. like incident and you like landed, right? Like, oh my gosh, like because they were it in total, they were like sideways for over 30 seconds, oh my like God. just slicing down yeah. and like the like physical experience of that and the panic and then you like get on the ground and I imagine the flight attendants who would have heard like when when the captain when Brian like picked up the phone right they don't know what happened the flight attendants do not know what happened right right? the pilots don't know what happened either for that matter right but like if you were the flight attendants and you're like you hear like the click of the the PA phone being picked up in the cockpit and then just nothing, and then just like click again, like oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. Yeah. oh my yeah. gosh, oh, oh <laughs> just, boy, just everybody exit, just Everyone let's all exit left, please, quickly. And I kind of wonder what like the gate agents knew, mm. like what did the gate agents know when the gate agent like got the thumbs up to like open the door? Oh like, my what, god, right? What like they had... sweet little yeah. like. Mary Sue in Richmond, Virginia, just like working the night shift at the airport. Oh my gosh. Right. There'd be all the firefighters, all the fire trucks would be out on the tarmac to prepare yeah. for an emergency. Oh. Yeah. If anyone out there, if that gate agent, if if that gate agent is your mom, please message me. Yeah. <laughs> but or like hug her. Please hug her yeah. if that's your mom. But, or if you yeah. are the gate agent, I guess that's possible. I would love that. It would make nothing would make me happier yeah. than thinking of such a heroic gate agent listening to our show. But yeah. oh man, thank God they fi- I mean they they figured it out. Right, right, right. And did they figure right. out like, that, like what, like what, mechanically what the issue was, like why it wasn't addressed? in the initial like engineering stage or they just it was just like a it you it's just my understanding at least is like you just don't know what you don't know gotcha so that kind of temperature test sure and again like the actuator did like it went in and out in and out in and out like for a while and then failed and so i think that that i think about i mean with twa 100 that was literally caused because 
it was a super hot day in New York and they had the air conditioning on because they were delayed for an hour and the air conditioner was on top oh, of the right. center tank. Yeah. And the center tank had just the right amount of fuel in it that it got heated and turned into fumes. Like that's like that. That's like a, it reminds me of that just because it's a temperature thing. Right. Like right. nobody had thought to run that test. If there's only this much fuel in the center tank and the air conditioner, it gets really hot because it's running and it's right on top of that tank. Like they just hadn't thought of it, yeah. you know? At least that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know. I am not, and I don't, I'm not an engineer, and I don't think that I think like an engineer. Like, I think that's like a, mm-hmm. a different way of thinking mm-hmm. that is like distinctly foreign to me, right? Yeah. And so I don't know, somebody knows, somebody listening to this probably knows, like what the benefits of the unique like dual servo valve is like versus the kinds of like rudder um controls that exist on other aircraft mm. like i don't know yeah. what the benefit of that unique system was intended to be if anybody remembers like a mil- like two years ago we did the um dc10 cargo hold um we talked about like the problems that were caused by the dc10 having the cargo um oh, right. door yeah that opened out instead of in yeah and the problem they were trying to fix was just the lost space if the cargo door goes in then you need to leave room for that door to swing open inside the cabin and if it just opens out then you get more cargo space that's the problem they were trying to fix and like whoops it caused oh yeah horrible problems Right. right but so I don't know the um, what that was intended to fix or or provide on the seven three sevens, the original system that were used on these planes. Mm, but got you, got you. Probably something, right, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, thank God it was like so few and far between, you know. Mm-hmm. Even with like horrible, right. obviously, but right. Goodness. Right. Yeah. <sighs> yeah it's like i think about like survivor's guilt mm-hmm. and how i've never heard this and i don't you know i don't know if ryan or spencer like the pilots on this on the east wind flight that mm-hmm. survived like i have no knowledge of them experiencing that but it would be like such a such a specific to aviation form of survivor's guilt because like it's years apart you don't know you don't even work for the same airline as those pilots you don't know those pilots like it's so separate it's separated by so many things yeah but i imagine that feeling like you know i had the same experience and like we lived and like unscathed physically you know how hard that might be yeah well, especially but. after thinking, for, like, it, it must have been in the back of their minds, you know, that this could potentially, something could potentially happen. I would imagine yeah. it always is at some, on some level, but, you know, especially yeah. with, like, an unanswered issue. And then right. to have it resolve and you're the pilot or the, you know, like the, I don't know, like, even being a passenger, like, you are on the flight that lived that solved this mystery that killed other people like that, that in and of itself is such a surreal 
um like something to take in that's yeah right right and going through like the mental process of like choosing a spot to crash the plane where yeah. like that that cal- doing that calculation and actually yeah. like visually looking for and choosing a place to die if yeah it happened again like that process is and being calm while you're doing it like right yeah right right yeah no i i yeah i don't know i don't know or even again like the pilot or really the crew anybody's like families Mm -hmm. right if their family is had like you know like there's for sure some pilots whose spouses were like you know some 737 pilots between like 1991 and 1996 who were like can you please get like switched to a different aircraft you know like please which isn't super simple right that's not like it's not a simple thing right and airlines need a lot of 737 pilots because it's the most popular commercial plane so and they are good planes right like the thing is like yeah all of you have been and will be on 737s in the future i'm Mm -hmm. sure but like just that (sighs) yeah 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 and i don't know like i think that's just in life in general that this specific type of story is the thing that scares me the most about like anything just in general about like um Mm. not knowing that something could happen or or Mm -hmm. not like knowing that something's wrong but not knowing when it's going to happen like that type of anticipation but like there's enough time in between you know Mm -hmm. like i just Mm -hmm. if i were a pilot this would be the scenario that i would just be like i don't know if i can i don't know if i can get in a plane again like you know because it, it it brings it too close to my reality that that is an option you know what i mean like always in the back of my head but wait a minute now i'm starting to fly these planes that don't have (laughs) we don't know why this crashed oh it happened to me like i think i'm i think i'm good you know but then it's like it's your livelihood like that's so right yeah and i i think i i hope this i hope i'm not wrong about this i know it's possible that i am but like i think most pilots like to fly planes right right i think that 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 at least that aspect of their job i think is very positive exactly time yeah and so like it's your livelihood and with any luck your passion right so how hard it would be to like not have access to that anymore right because of like the effect of tragedies like this. Yeah, exactly. Know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> do you have a fact for me today? I do. Just for it's me. It's a plane related fact, actually. S- it is. We'll stop recording. This fact is only for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It'll just be a long beep at this point yeah <laughs> um casey did you know that elvis press one of elvis presley's private jet a 1962 lockheed uh 1329 jet star uh okay. has been living in the desert for the past 40 years and oh. just recently sold for 
$260,000, which feels like uh, the price of the house, right? Like a price of a house. I mean, you can't fly it, so there's no engine, no cockpit. Um, (laughs) No cockpit? No no cockpit. No cockpit instruments is what the the article said. Okay. Okay. Um, But there are still, uh, the interior is red velvet. Um, there Ooh. are gold plated ashtrays on the seats installed in the seats because of course I just want those. Yes. That's all I want. Like I want I only these want seats. the ashtrays. I want the yeah, seats. Yeah, the seats. <laughs> like I would in pay your $260,000 for the seats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like yes. Yes, I would like those. Yes. I that is very cool. Yes. The outside also the is like the coolest looking air. Like this just in general is the coolest fucking looking airplane and I want it. Like put it put it make a story on Instagram yes, about it so yes. that people can see. 100%. It is like yeah. It's cool weathered from like the 60s. It's like silver and oh, red. Love it. And it's like mm. a cool looking plane. It's very cool. Oh on the inside too. i love that kind um, of thing yeah that is so cool funny so, enough did the person oh go no ahead, go ahead go ahead i was gonna say do they did the person who purchased it say if they're gonna like try to make it airworthy again or they is it- they did not say people have been so essentially this has been like something that has been sold time and time again uh mm. and just keeps decreasing in value um oh, no. <laughs> so, um, when Elvis bought it, he bought it for $840,000, which is equivalent to $4.4 4 today. So that's how much Whoa. he bought it in 1967. That was the year he bought it in. Um, Whoa. And the person... Oh, I lost that number. But someone bought it, uh, like, six years ago for, I think, 600000 like current and then um and then it just sold for 260 so it is continuing so like, <laughs> continuing oh to lose value so but time and inflation yes. have been incredibly kind yes <laughs> to people who want to buy this plane yes very very kind um Whoa. and everyone is like is suggesting basically that they should just set up like a site as a like an elvis i don't know like come visit the elvis plane in the desert like an extra, like totally. a tourist attraction. There's, there's the word. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Like easy like, peasy. Or Graceland is that what's what his home is? Yeah. Like in, I'm surprised that they didn't right. want to have it there. Like his ex wife wife was at the auction. Was at the auction. She was the one. She was the one hyping it up so that it would get more money. I think. Oh. But she wasn't the one selling it. So I just I don't I don't know. And this is like the third or second time that they've tried to sell it in the past six years and has been unsuccessful. This is all, when they bought it, did they buy it like sight unseen and didn't know that it didn't have like, it was missing so much or something? And then Um, maybe, I don't know. That's no, he originally, the original purchaser, like who purchased it six years ago had originally planned, um, it says to ship the plane uh, yeah, he was just gonna ship it to like oh, wherever yeah. he lived in Los Angeles Where, and do yeah. something, like do a, you know, a tourist thing there. I guess. Yeah. But 
um, in order to ship it, they would have to take the whole thing apart. And oh, I would imagine it would thing. lose even more value at that point. Yeah, that's that's a whole thing. Yeah, that's a headache. I man, planes are cool. Planes are cool, I and this planes. plane so is cool. really fucking cool. So we will post yeah. it on the Instagram. Very good. Yeah, and I, I just do, love I mean, that it's lucky? been sitting in the desert. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> beautiful. You know how we feel. Yeah. I love the desert yeah. in general. And I just I like, think we could have bought an Elvis Presley plane for two hundred sixty thousand. Not that either of us have anywhere near money than, to that money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's also about what we've probably spent in rent in New York City yeah. collectively in like the last seven years. Right. So, like, want to go live in yeah. Elvis's plane and sleep on his red velvet chairs? Yeah, in the desert. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I do want that. That is what I want. Golden ashtrays? Yes. yes. That's what I want. It's beautiful. <laughs> in a plane. Yeah. Yes. That's what I desire. And I hope that this, oh, 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 I'm glad that you brought this up in general yeah. because it's a fact and thank you for sharing it. But also it helps to remind me um, if any of you are in or around D.C., which maybe none of you are. Mm. That's just possible. <laughs> yeah. But if any of you are, um, message us. If you want to go to the Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Air, Museum, Air and Space Museum, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, maybe we'll just go just the two of us. Yeah. And that'll be a, <laughs> a, a romp, right? That's still fun. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But if you're gonna be around DC, message us. Yeah, we'll in uh, March, the first week of March, second week of March, first week Question. of March. Message us yeah. so we can talk about it. We'll figure it out. But, and it's not like there's no money involved. It, the Smithsonian Museums are free. Mm-hmm. It is free <laughs> to hang out with us in a free lo- public place. Yes. Like, yeah. you know, so yeah, message us. We got to do one. We got to. We got to do like a. Know, man. Yeah, a movie night or like a something. I know. I want to do something like that so badly. There's like. I don't know. My, I don't know if you feel like this, but like my energy, you know, rises and falls like yep. it does. Yep. And so there's times where I'm like, it is truly impossible for me to yeah. think about planes. Yeah. And then there's times where it's like, let's do everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do, do all the planes. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, I promised you this would be about an hour and here we are. Here we are. So, Look at that. Perfect yeah. timing. I love you so much, Mariah. I love you, I love you so much. So, so much. Oh, Thanks for telling us. We love story. all of you. Thank you, Mariah. Thank you for listening. I love you. Yes. I'll see you later. Sounds good. Say hi to you, all you guys. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Pod Crashed. We so hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can find us on Instagram or TikTok or email us at thepodcrashed at gmail.com. A very happy birthday and a very fuck Cincinnati to you, our dear listener, Kalia. Kalia? We went back and forth. Thank you so much to everyone who has messaged us. We really, really, really do love it. And we like to have inside jokes with you guys. So thank you all. See you next week.